welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Coriel, and Philippe de Lamatrac. And we've been reading Finding Home by Philippe. This is the sequel to Alien Us, which was read in season six. And it was only recently finished. I started it uh, in 2020, I believe. Six years after I finished Alien Us, because it took that time to gel till I could write the first scene, and then it started coming together, and I finished it just last week. So we've been reading it, and chapter eight took a big turn, and it went pretty bad for Malcolm, and I just, well, I couldn't put it down, so I just got done recording episode 10 or episode 8 of season 10 and here I am recording episode 9 <laughs> on the same day. So let's get started. Chapter 9. Star Trek Enterprise Finding Home by Philippe de la Matrac. Sequel to Alien Us. Chapter 9. It was after 11 by the time Trip set the flitter down. Malcolm hadn't said a word the whole hour it took to get home. Tripp powered down, then turned to look at his friend, and he wondered if Malcolm could come out of this. His eyes seemed unfocused, and his cheeks were tear-stained. He looked like an empty shell of a man, and Tripp sincerely hoped he or Trevon could reach him before Tripp had to go back to Enterprise. That was scheduled for Thursday, in just two more days. "'Can you walk?' he asked Malcolm. "'Or do you want the chair?' Malcolm didn't respond or even act like he'd heard. Still, he had to get Malcolm up either way. Tripp took the blanket off and laid it across the back of his own chair. Then he put his hands under Malcolm's arms and lifted him up. And he stayed up. Tripp put the blanket over Malcolm's shoulders. Then, holding on to Malcolm's shoulders, he guided him to the hatch. The hatch opened, and Tripp saw his dad and Miguel. I don't know if he can step out, Tripp told them. Miguel nodded, then reached in and put one arm on the back of Malcolm's knees. Tripp got a better grip on Malcolm's upper half, and the two of them got Malcolm past the lip of the hatch. And again, he stood. That's when Tripp saw his mom. She approached and kissed Tripp on the cheek. She looked at Malcolm and put her hand against the side of Malcolm's face. Welcome home, Malcolm. Then she moved to his other side. She and Tripp got Malcolm walking toward the open door of the house. Behind him, Tripp heard Dad and Miguel in the flitter, and he knew they were getting Malcolm's bag in the wheelchair. Tripp had to sort of lift Malcolm over the step. Mom had stepped back, but she joined them again inside the house. Your room, Tripp, she said, so they went down the hall to the first door on the right. Tripp noted they'd cleaned it up a bit. He always had some projects to work on scattered about. Miguel entered behind them as Tripp set Malcolm down on the bed. We need to get him out of those wet clothes. I'll do it, Tripp replied. I helped him dress recently. Besides, he might mistake you for a rather large pterodactyl. I'll try and introduce you tomorrow. Miguel nodded and fished out a t-shirt and some sleep pants from Malcolm's bag. Then he stepped out of the room. Your pants are all muddy, Tripp told Malcolm. Heck, mine are too. Let's get them changed, then you can get in bed. He stood Malcolm up again and tugged his pants down to his ankles. He noted the bandages were also muddy and wet. He realized he'd have to introduce Miguel tonight. He sat Malcolm again and lifted one foot and the other until the wet pants were off. 
He worked in reverse to get the clean pair on. It was like dressing an oversized doll. He remembered Lizzie playing with dolls when she was little. Still, he wasn't sure how exactly to get Malcolm's shirt changed. Mom stepped in then and pulled the blanket off Malcolm's shoulders. She lifted his shirt up to his armpits and one by one got it off his arms and over his head. She pulled the clean one over his head and gently inserted each arm. I remember dressing you like this, Trip. she said, smiling. You were quite a bit smaller then. Trip put the blanket back on Malcolm's shoulders. His bandages need changed. I'll get Miguel. She left and Miguel returned a minute later with a med bag over his shoulder. Malcolm, Trip tried. This is Miguel, my brother's husband. He's going to be around to help you. Hello, Malcolm, Miguel offered. He knelt down in front of Malcolm. I'm going to look at your ankles, okay? Malcolm's head was down, so maybe he saw Miguel, but Trip wasn't sure. It only took Miguel a few minutes to strip off the dirty bandage and, and put nice, clean ones back on. You're healing well, he told Malcolm. Then he turned to Trip. Can you get a wet cloth, please? Uh, yeah. Miguel started on Malcolm's left wrist, and Trip went to the adjoining bathroom and wet a washcloth with hot water. He took it back to Miguel. Miguel had the splint and bandages off the one wrist. He held it still with one hand and cleaned Malcolm's fingers with the other. He used the cloth to wipe the edges of the splint, then Miguel put it back on after he'd replaced the bandages. They did the same for Malcolm's right wrist. If you can get him up, I'll pull back the covers, Miguel offered. Tripp stood Malcolm up and held him there. We're going to help you through this, Malcolm. You're a survivor, remember? Malcolm got the bed ready, then helped Malcolm to lie down. Then Malcolm turned himself over to face the wall. Miguel tucked the blankets around him. We need to talk, he whispered to Tripp. Then they left the room. Try and get some sleep, Malcolm, Tripp said. I'll just be in the kitchen with my folks. I want you to feel at home here. You're my brother now, Malcolm. He turned, grabbed Miguel's pad, and left, wiping a tear from his own cheek. Mom hugged him when he got to the kitchen. What happened? He's not how you described him. Tripp rubbed a hand through his hair and sat down. He suddenly felt very tired. He handed Miguel the pad, and Dad put a mug of coffee in front of him. He was. He was doing fine. He went to the park this morning. He loved it out there. We talked at dinner. He sighed. After I left, his folks showed up. His dad started yelling that they had murdered their daughter and cut her up to save her brother, who wasn't worth it. He heard that. His sister was his donor? Miguel asked. Did he know? That's got to cause some mixed feelings. He didn't, Tripp said. I didn't. Mom looked like she might start crying. That poor man. He's only feeling hurt right now. His sister is dead and his father didn't care that he almost died. You were right to be worried about his family. His sister apparently volunteered, Tripp told them. She had brain cancer, terminal. She chose to be his donor. I met her. She hid it. Said she was sick, but not that sick, you know? Was he like that when you got there? Dad asked. Tripp took a sip, then set the mug back down. He was kneeling by the pond in that park. He was thinking of drowning himself. He's aquaphobic, and he was going to drown himself. He's going to need a mental health professional, Miguel pointed out. One's coming, Tripp replied. The one he'd been talking to there. Tripp put his elbows on the table and his head in his hands. I've never seen him like this. How can I leave if he's still like that? Dad put a hand on his back. He's family, and we'll help him get through it.
Trip dreamt of finding Malcolm face down in that pond and snapped awake. Miguel was right there. There was a soft light behind the curtains that hung behind the couch he was laying on. My turn for the couch, Miguel said, sitting down by Trip's legs. He looked tired. I checked on him through the night. No change. He never even closed his eyes. Physically, I can tell he's in pain. That's to be expected so soon after major surgery. I left a message for Dr. Perez to see if I can give him something. It might help him sleep. Tripp sat up and rubbed his eyes. His heart? Still pumping, Miguel assured him. A lot of that pain is likely emotional, even with what happened in the last year. The stuff with his family probably goes a lot deeper. Something happened when he was 12, Tripp told him. I wish I knew what. I hope your guy gets here soon, but I need some sleep. Mom's got breakfast ready. Go get it before it gets cold. Tripp stood and stretched his legs. He went down the hall to the main bathroom and took care of his needs. Then he stopped in his, Malcolm's, room. The lights were off and the curtains drawn, so it was still fairly dark. Malcolm hadn't moved, and yes, Tripp could see his eyes still open once his own eyes adjusted to the dark again. It's morning, Malcolm, he whispered. The sun's shining out that window. I can hear the birds chirping outside. It's going to be a pretty day. If you're up to it, I can take you for a walk in the neighborhood. We still have the wheelchair, so you don't even have to worry about getting tired. Nothing. Tripp tried again. Madeline loved you, Malcolm. She really did. Your dad was wrong. She gave you her heart. She was sick, more than she let on. She wanted to save you, and she did. Then he remembered the metal case, the one Miss Farmer had left. Tripp picked it up and set it on the desk. He opened it. Inside were two pads. One had a list, a very short list. The first item was an address. Tripp guessed it was Madeline's London apartment. The second item was all contents of said apartment to be kept or disposed of in any manner the recipient chose. So, in a sense, she left him everything. Third was a small container, for memorial purposes if desired. Tripp found it and gave it a shake. It sounded like sand, only softer, and he guessed it was ashes. It was too small to be all her body, and Miss Varmer had mentioned a funeral, so this was just a small amount in case Malcolm wanted some sort of memorial. He put the container back. The final item on the list was the other pad, a video journal of the deceased to be viewed by her beloved brother. He pulled out the pad and turned it on. He could see the first entry was more than six months back. He queued up the last entry, from the week before she died. He didn't play it. That was for Malcolm. He switched off the pad and put it back in the case. Then he closed the case and put it back on the floor. In a very small way, Tripp felt jealous of Malcolm. He had a whole apartment of things from his sister, from some of her ashes and her own words. Tripp lost everything of Lizzie. Her house was gone, her body vaporized. There were no goodbyes or last I love yous. Tripp had parents that loved him, but nothing of his sister. Malcolm had everything from his sister and awful parents. Tripp wasn't jealous of them, for sure. And he wasn't jealous of all the hurt Malcolm was stuck in, or how he felt without Hoshi or everything he suffered in Sheeran. Malcolm needed help, more than Tripp knew how to give, and he hoped Travon would come soon. He made sure Malcolm was still tucked in well, then he went to the kitchen. Dr. Coy Travon left the house where he would be staying. It was within walking distance of the address Commander Tucker had given Dr. McCormick. The elderly couple he would be staying with had offered a furnished guest room. They were happy to share meals and offered free use of the kitchen. They only asked for one hour of therapy together each week. 
They had been quite terrified after the Zindi attack, and while they had not lost anyone they were particularly close with, they were traumatized by the thought of the Zindi's return to destroy the planet. This was somewhat alleviated by the destruction of the planet-killing weapon by the Enterprise crew. But still, they had nightmares and such, and they had issues as a couple. They were committed to their marriage, but the wife was more laid back and had less severe trauma, whereas her husband's was worse. He felt she was losing patience with his recovery, and she felt he wasn't trying hard enough to recover. It would be a complicated but more typical trauma case than that presented by Malcolm Reed. Trevon was unsure yet of how to reach the man. Obviously, family issues could stem as far back as early childhood, even from the womb, Whereas he'd been assigned to help Malcolm with his trauma over the last year, he would now have to widen the scope of Malcolm's early and deepest hurts, and that could only happen if Malcolm could communicate in some manner. Last night, that had not been possible except to rename himself Faramir from Sam. Sam represented the early days of his stay in Jiren, when he buoyed Hoshi's Frodo up. Frodo had been increasingly burdened by the ring he carried. Faithful Sam had helped Frodo find hope over and over in the depths of Mordor. Faramir, on the other hand, was a faithful son of his ungrateful father. Denethor showered affection on his elder son, Boromir, and had none left for his younger son, who could never measure up in his father's eyes. Typically, that family dynamic would cause a rift between the siblings. The favored child would often mock the unfavored status of the other and the unfavored child would typically act out, fulfilling the father's view of him as inadequate. But in the fictional case of Denethor's sons, he found a loving relationship between the brothers and a valiant, up, upright, unfavored son, even one who could resist the call of the ring where Boromir could not, without bitterness. But Faramir, potentially like Malcolm, had yearned for his father's affection and approval. The realization that he would never receive it had come after Boromir's death, Denethor, likely fueled by his grief and the corruption of the Palantir, had finally spoken outright of his disdain for his surviving son, admitting that he wished Faramir had died instead. He even ordered Faramir to lead an impossible mission. One last time, Faramir outwardly asked for his approval. But if I should return, think better of me. Denethor made it clear his approval was conditional. That depends on the manner of your return. Faramir, for his part, was devastated to the point of accepting his suicide mission. Gandalf tried to buoy him up. Your father loves you, Faramir, and will remember it ere the end. He was right. Denethor did remember, but only when his last surviving son appeared to be dead or dying. He fell into madness, and Gandalf had to save Faramir from his father. He then awaited the coming of the king after the grand battle. Aragorn healed him of the illness known as the Black Breath, which came from close contact with the Nazgul. He met the similarly healed Eowyn in the Houses of Healing and went on to a happy ending as steward of Gondor under his new king. Faramir was definitely a better fit for Malcolm, but it didn't appear that his father would remember his love for his son. Malcolm had been dying, and the elder Reed still had disdain for his son, given he was perhaps fueled by grief as Denethor was. But this had to go deeper and further back. Had Malcolm, like Faramir, never received his father's affections, or had something caused the rift between them? Was that the secret hurt Trevon had sensed? There, he was at the address. He hesitated to ring the chime on the door. It had been a late night in this household, and someone may still be sleeping. So he tried a subtler approach. Commander Tucker, it is Dr. Trevon. I am outside your door. Oh, wow. Never had this happen before. Well, except... 
But anyway, it's probably a good thing. Miguel's asleep on the couch. I'll be right there. A moment later, the door opened to reveal a somewhat disheveled Commander Tucker. Come on in, he whispered, and call me Trip. Ah, uh, yes, I forgot, Trevon whispered back. A young man with a slightly darker complexion was sleeping on the sofa in the main room, the aforementioned Miguel. Dr. McCormick had told him a relation of Tripp's was a home health nurse, so he had probably stayed up the night with Malcolm. Tripp led him first into the kitchen and quietly introduced his parents as Charles and Elaine Tucker. Would you like some coffee, Dr. Trevon? Elaine offered. Thank you, but please, I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of each other. Please leave the doctor off and just call me Trevon. Please have a seat. Tripp said, pulling out a chair. So Trevon sat, and Elaine set a steaming mug in front of him. I'm glad you could come so soon. What have I missed? Trevon asked. How has he been? Catatonic? Tripp guessed. He never said a word, just stared and looked pitiful. But he was kind of pliant. He stood when I stood him up, walked where I led him. He let us change his wet clothes. Then he curled up in bed. He hasn't moved or even closed his eyes all night. He did speak to me once, Trevon admitted, last night while you were collecting his things. He told me he wasn't Sam. Instead, he was Faramir. Are you familiar with this character? Kinda, Tripp replied. We watched the movies on the ship before the crash. He was Boromir's brother. Oh, I remember, Elaine spoke up. He broke my heart, the way his father treated him. It seems a fitting analogy, Trevon surmised, but I'd be interested to know what you've seen or heard about Malcolm's feelings in regards to his father. Tripp pondered the question for a moment. He seemed puzzled. Malcolm's not the most forthcoming person when it comes to his private life. I know he said he wasn't particularly close with anyone in his family. He must not admit Madeline. She left him everything in her will. Everything. Tripp considered this. It could be that she wasn't allowed to show her affection for her brother. There's a lot we don't know yet. Anything else? I think I remember him slipping a remark here or there, Tripp said, about how he hoped his father would be proud of him, but I never heard if he was. I know that no one knew Malcolm's favorite food, not his parents, Madeline, an uncle, a couple of aunts, and a friend from the academy. That was odd. So Malcolm's reticence to speak about himself reached into his family life. That's not normal, right? Tripp asked. Not in healthy families, Trevon confirmed. Anything else? That's about it, Tripp answered. Malcolm Reed is known on the ship as an enigma wrapped in a mystery. I'm his best friend, but there's a lot I don't know about him. Siobhan smiled. And that didn't hamper your friendship. Tripp shook his head, but then changed his mind. Well, at first. We got stuck together in a shuttle pod. Com went out in an asteroid field. We saw debris from Enterprise and thought it was destroyed, and then micro-singularities yeah, they're a thing, put holes in one of our oxygen tanks. We thought we were going to die out there. The first few days, he drove me nuts. I won't go into it because I don't think he'd appreciate it, but it was like he was dropping pieces to his puzzle, too. Once I stopped being so selfish, I could see him. Long story short, we found a bottle of bourbon, got the comms fixed enough to hear Enterprise, so we were happy for about 30 seconds. Then we realized we'd be dead long before Enterprise could reach us at their present speed. I lowered the temperature to use less oxygen. Malcolm had the idea to blow up the engine. Maybe the ship would see it and speed up. Eventually, we passed out, woke up in sick bay. He chuckled. <laughs> nearly died of hypothermia. Still had a few hours of oxygen left. So really, I nearly killed us. Anyway, after that, we were friends. He was still an enigma, but it didn't matter anymore. I accepted him as he was. Trevon smiled in earnest. You are a good friend, Tripp, and I appreciate your respect for his privacy. From here on out, I will have to respect it as well. I may come to you for clarification at times before you leave. 
but what I learned from him will be between us unless he divulges it himself. Trip nodded, as did his parents. May I see him now? Trevon asked. Trip stood. I'll show you to him. Trevon stood, and Trip led him back to the front room, then down a hall into the first room on the right. It was quite dark in the room, so Trip raised the light somewhat. You ever just read someone's mind? Trip whispered. Only in severe cases, Trevon responded in kind. I think this might be one of those cases. That will need to be determined, Trevon told him. If I need that clarification, may I contact you telepathically? Trip nodded. Sure. He looked toward the bed, then sighed. I'll leave you to it. Good luck. He left the room and Trevon closed the door. There was a chair at the desk, so Trevon pulled it over to the side of the bed and sat down. Malcolm was turned to face the wall. He gave no sign that he was aware anyone was in the room with him. Malcolm? Trevon tried. It's Trevon. I was hoping we could talk today. I know last night was very difficult for you. It's understandable. I'm very sorry for the loss of your sister, though I'm grateful to her for loving you enough to give her life for yours. Nothing. The only movement was the in and out of the blankets as he breathed. The movement was regular, so he wasn't crying. Trevon opened his mind to see if Malcolm was still projecting that deep sadness, but he felt no difference. It was almost like Malcolm wasn't there. Tripp was right. This was one of those cases. He pulled a pad from his pocket so that he could record notes or whatever clues he could find in Malcolm Reed's mind. Then he took a smaller device from a different pocket and attached it just behind his left ear. Once synchronized to the pad, it would record any telepathic communications between therapist and client. He could telepathically dictate notes to annotate those communications. He synchronized the device, then prepared himself. It was easier if he could look his patient in the face, but he focused on the back of Malcolm's head. Then slowly, he opened his barrier just a little, but said nothing. And Malcolm was there. The pad stayed blank. Not enough information yet. He went wider, bit by bit, until he could hear and see Malcolm's thoughts. While it outwardly appeared that Malcolm had no thoughts, in truth, he was drowning in them. The pad lit up with line after line of text in Beta Zedian. Trevon tried to annotate, to translate when he saw only images or heard only voices. But the thoughts swirled so fast, tumbling over each other, so that he could only consciously catch a few at a time. There were images of a blonde girl at various ages, Madeline, angry, demeaning messages from Stuart Reed, echoed by Mary Reed, though more softly, meals at a table when Malcolm felt ill eating the fruit in front of him but choked down every bite, Water, lots of water, Malcolm in water, and not swimming, more of the orcs and T-Rexes, violent scenes, what must have been Beju's corpse disemboweled, Malcolm's execution, a blinding, burning, oppressive sun, back to the blonde hair of his sister, and around and around it went. When Trevon had recorded for more than an hour, he slipped back out. The lines of data ceased on the pad. Trevon scrolled up and scanned the whole thing, trying to sort it as best he could, Family memories, Jiren memories, drowning memories. He tried to infer ages if humans and betazoids developed similarly. Madeline at three or four, teenaged, a grown woman. Do you know the age difference between Malcolm and Madeline by chance? He asked Tripp. Four years, Tripp replied, though he's a year older than he is, technically. Thank you. Trevon cut the connection. 
So now if he could estimate Madeline's age, he could extrapolate Malcolm's in the thoughts of her. Harder to do with the parents. He opened the connection to Trip again. Can you get background checks on his parents and not read them? I could try. Dr. McCormick could probably order them after the outburst last night. Should I give her a call? Please do. It may help me to sort through my findings. Is he talking? Trip sounded hopeful. No, Trip. It's one of those cases. I'll give her a call. Thank you. He closed the connection again. I'm sorry I had to do that, Malcolm, but I understand now what's happening. You are spiraling through your hurts. You can't focus or speak of one because it leads to another and another and another. You've left me quite a puzzle. It will take me a little while to go through it, but once I do, I hope we can talk. I'll guide you. I'll ask you questions, lead you to one hurt at a time. Please try and sleep. You need the rest. I'm staying just a short walk away. If ever you need me, you may call for me, either by calm or by your telepathy. I will respond. I will come. He stood and replaced the chair. He was reasonably certain that Malcolm hadn't heard a word or even noticed the intrusion into his mind. Trevon left the room and returned to the kitchen. I've done all I can today, he quietly told Tripp and his parents. I can tell you that he's in there. It's not that he's not thinking. His body is on automatic because his mind is too preoccupied with memories and thoughts. He is not aware of his surroundings. I told him about Betazoids being telepaths, Tripp admitted, and that you don't go around reading minds except in severe cases. Thank you, Trevon said. It's so common on Beta Z that I sometimes forget it's not here. I do not enjoy intruding in such a way, but I was able to glean a lot of information. I need to parse through it. Background checks on the parents may help me put some of it into context. And Trip, could you summarize what happened to Insensato when she was separated from him? Trip nodded. McCormick's on the background checks. I leave tomorrow. Any chance he'll be able to talk by then? I think he'll talk, Trevon said, but it will be on his timetable. Right now, he can't. You might be able to feed him, as you said he was pliant. Your relation, Miguel, can perhaps help with that and other necessities. I'd like to speak with him when he wakes. You can contact me at any time. I'm staying within walking distance. Trip went to the comm. What's the address? Trevon told him, and Trip added it to the contacts. Call me if anything changes. I hope to return tomorrow morning, if that is amenable. Anytime, Charles said. Just let one of us know you're at the door. Thank you. It's very kind of you to take him in. He's family, Elaine remarked. He just doesn't know it yet. Trevon smiled again. That may be just what he needs in the end. I'll let myself out. Malcolm Reed had no sense of time as he lay in bed. He wasn't even so much aware he was in a bed except that his body for the most part was comfortable meaning the few parts of his physical body bothered meaning that few uh, parts of his physical body bothered making themselves known his wrists were sore as were his ankles there was a deep pain in his chest however and it anchored him to the mattress for countless hours his thoughts boiled with images and voices, memories of his sister, the orcs, his father, the water, the torture, the fountain, the surgeries, the pond, the laboratory, the ocean, the desert, the tub of water, and T-Rex's clawed hand on his neck. They played over and over, digging deeper and deeper in his memory until forgotten scoldings and unremembered frowns, moments of terror that bled into each other. Over time, other parts of his body vied for his attention, his stomach, his bladder, the force of the memories and grief were such that he hadn't noticed either. Hours had passed until they became insistent. 
So Malcolm turned. He pushed the blankets off and found, to his surprise, that he wasn't cold. Why had there been a blanket? Had the orcs given up so soon? The room he was in was dark, the building quiet. No red lamps to heat the night. There was a small light off to his right, so he sat and pushed himself up until he was standing. He moved toward the light. He found a restroom, so he could quiet one of those insistent needs. Once he'd done that, his stomach insisted he stay up. The orcs hadn't fed him. He dreaded what that meant. Memories of darkness and immense pain canceled out all other thoughts, pausing the roiling litany for this one or six. His chest, his legs, his arm, his eye, his back, his head, his groin. When those memories subsided enough to let his father's voice chide him for not fighting back, Malcolm found himself on the cold floor of wherever he was. And he found his stomach fairly screaming its need for food. He pushed himself up onto his knees, then used the sink beside him to stand again. He walked back into the room with the bed and noticed another light to his right. So he walked through a door. He was in a corridor, narrower than the ones he'd seen in the lab, more like home. He turned left, toward a lessening of the darkness. He could make out two sleeping forms in a larger room. The orcs were sleeping. He had to be quiet or he'd wake them. Maybe he could get out. He crept closer, using the wall for support and hoping they couldn't hear his father yelling in that first room. More light to his right, another doorway, wider than the last. There was light beyond, not bright but like the desert at night. He went through it and found a room bright with moonlight shining through a wide glass door. There was a table with many chairs and a hum of low-powered devices. He stopped walking as his memories tried to make sense of the place. Malcolm? A woman's voice. Not Madeline, not Mother, not Hoshi. Someone rose behind him and he was afraid to turn. A hand on his shoulder turned him gently. Are you hungry? It was as if the world had become silent. He couldn't hear that his father, the orcs, any of it. Suddenly the sounds of nature, birds, and insects filtered through the large glass door to his ears. He looked at the woman. She was older than he was, more mother's age, but with more lines, dark circles under her eyes. She wore her hair in a ponytail. She was wearing a robe over a gown and house slippers. He didn't recognize her, or the room he was standing in. He took a moment to look around now that his eyes had fully adjusted to the relative light in the room. There was a stove and storage cabinets, an icebox or a refrigerator, the table with its chairs. He was in a kitchen, a kitchenware. His voice was breathy when he finally used it. Where am I? The woman pulled out one of the chairs, then took his hand and led him to it. You're in my home, Tripp's home. I'm his mother. Would you like me to make you something? Maybe some scrambled eggs? Malcolm's stomach growled. Please. Trips home. She retrieved some items from the icebox and a dish to mix them. I have trouble sleeping too, she said. Trips mother. Trips sister. Dead. Her daughter. Dead. Elizabeth. Dead. Madeline. Dead. The pain in his chest came roaring back as the memory slammed into him. Madeline was dead. And for what? Father was back. If you hadn't needed a heart, she would be alive. It's your fault. Malcolm closed his eyes, wishing for the silence, the birds and insects. A hand touched his arm. Here, eat. You'll feel better. 
He opened his eyes to find a plate with yellow scrambled eggs in front of him. The steam warmed his face. There was a glass of milk, too. He lifted the fork from the plate, but his father's voice behind him caused his hand to shake, and he dropped it. We ought to have done with you by now, he harangued. So many opportunities to rid us of your disgrace. It's all right, she said, picking up the fork. She scooped up a bit of the eggs and put the fork back in his hand. She helped him hold it steady as he brought it to his lips. Look at you, his father spat. You're weak. A reed man would never let a stranger, especially a woman, see him like this. He couldn't even taste the eggs as she helped him eat bite after bite until they were gone. It settled his stomach, which left the pain dominant. His throat hurt, making it hard to swallow. I know grief, she said. You don't have to hide it from us, from me. He looked across the table and, for just a moment, he saw Madeline smile at him. He felt a hand on his back, but it wasn't his father. It was gentle, soothing. He looked at the woman, Tripp's mother. The words came out before he could hold them back. I think I'm losing my mind, he whispered to her. She scooted her chair closer and let her arm reach around to his other shoulder. Well, this is a safe place to do it. She smiled, then pulled the glass closer. Have some milk. She wrapped his hand around the glass and helped him lift it. He drank half, then sat it on the table. She stood and helped him stand, then led him by the hand to a bench set into the wall. She sat and pulled him down to sit beside her. I have trouble sleeping sometimes, too, she said again, without letting go of his hand. Sometimes I dream of my daughter, and it feels so real, it wakes me up. Then I come here to sit and listen and remember. Malcolm didn't want to remember any of it. Not his father's voice, not his sister's death, not the orcs, not the water. He remembered Hoshi. He wanted memories of her. He wanted her. But all the memories crowded her out, and she was gone. Madeline was gone. Beja was gone. His father glared at him from the table. Do you mind if I tell you about her? The woman asked. She was beautiful. She had long blonde hair, like her father's used to be. Albert has my dark hair. Trip is somewhere in the middle, but Lizzie was all blonde. She was funny and loved telling jokes. We weren't surprised at all when she wanted to study architecture. She had just gotten her first real job as an architect. Madeline was an architect. Madeline was blonde. She liked telling jokes, even if they weren't funny. The woman sighed, then she started again. Albert was maybe too old for her, but she latched onto Trip straight away. Whatever he was doing, wherever he was going, she wanted to tag along. Malcolm's eyes grew heavy as he listened to her voice. For a moment, he felt he could make it. It wasn't Hoshi, but her voice gave him something to hold on to. If he closed his eyes, he couldn't even see his father, and he felt safe. It felt good to remember Lizzie when she was young and vibrant. Memories she hadn't thought she still had came to her, and she found herself telling him another story. But she noticed when he'd closed his eyes. A little while later, his body had relaxed, and he'd nodded forward. She caught him and gently pulled him towards her, so that his head ended up on her shoulder. She smiled. When she spoke again, she lowered her volume. Well, at least one of us can sleep. I think you need it more than I do. Then she told him another story, or she told herself. It didn't really matter as long as he was peaceful. She thought maybe her stories had kept his demons at bay, and something good had come from her own sleeplessness. As she spoke, she could see Lizzie and Tripp chasing each other around the kitchen table as kids while she cooked at the stove. Gracie? 
The voice surprised her. She opened her eyes to bright light beyond the glass door on the other side of the kitchen. Charlie stood beside her in his robe and slippers. She turned her head to see Malcolm still asleep there. Her arm felt odd and tingly. He looked so peaceful she didn't want to wake him, but she needed some circulation in her arm. She tried opening and closing her fist a few times, but it was no use. Charlie had that look on his face that told her he was thinking, with his lips pressed to one side. "'Think I want breakfast?' he whispered. She nodded her head toward the table where the plate and probably warm milk still stood. "'He had a little,' she whispered back. "'Not like we can pick him up and carry him back to bed.' She smiled, remembering doing that with the kids, but Malcolm was not one of those. Maybe Trip can coax him back there. Hopefully he can get back to sleep. Charlie nodded and left the kitchen. She heard him waking Trip in the living room. Not two minutes later, they were back. Trip bent down and kissed her forehead, then turned to his friend. He put out a hand to touch Malcolm's other shoulder, but Malcolm bolted upright and his expression scared Elaine. His sleep had been anything but peaceful. He was terrified. Trip grabbed his shoulder, touched his face. It's okay, you're safe. Malcolm's hands had gone to his chest like he expected it to burst open. How invasively had he been studied, she wondered. Malcolm's breathing calmed. His initial terror was gone, but now, in the light, she could see that he was gone again. He looked around like he didn't know where he was. Maybe he was right and he was losing his mind. She hoped the therapist could help him. She wanted to think he could heal here. He seemed to trust Trip and stood. Trip walked him out of the kitchen. Charlie waited until they were down the hall. I'll get breakfast going. How long was he here? It was dark, Elaine told him. Couldn't see the clock. She could now. It was 6.43, and she remembered Trip had to leave today. Despite the abrupt waking, Malcolm still seemed tired when Trip got him back to the still rather dark bedroom, but Malcolm didn't go right back to sleep, so Trip pulled the chair close. You're safe here, Malcolm, he said. Mom and Dad are going to make sure of that. Miguel is here to help you stay healthy. Your parents don't know you're here. They won't know. You can be part of my family now. It'll be different than what you're used to, I think, but I'm sure you'll get the hang of it. Malcolm didn't say anything or even give him any way of knowing that he'd understood. The only difference from yesterday was that his eyelids were heavy and kept trying to close. Tripp realized now why Malcolm kept forcing them open. The terror he'd seen on his friend's face, the way he'd clutched his chest, had told him that Malcolm had not been sleeping peacefully. He guessed Malcolm had been dreaming he was paralyzed and being cut open. I wish I could help you have better dreams, he told Malcolm. Malcolm had been awake for the better part of 48 hours now. That couldn't be helping his mental state. But neither could nightmares like that. And maybe they were more terrifying or vivid now because of the state he was in. I wish you'd talk to me. He remembered the letter he'd seen addressed to Hoshi. I have to leave today, to go back to Enterprise. I want to tell Hoshi that you're okay, that you're healing. You were... And I gotta hope you will again, but we won't know until the mission's over and we can come back here. Nothing. Tripp had really hoped that Malcolm's nighttime walk to the kitchen and falling asleep on his mother's shoulder had meant some sort of breakthrough, that Malcolm was coming back from the brink or at least further away from catatonic. Maybe a few more hours of sleep, however that went, would get him back to at least some level of lucidity. Hoshi and he had told each other stories to help them through their respective horrors. 
so Tripp thought it was worth a try. Did I ever tell you what it was like for me growing up? I'm a middle kid, not the oldest and not the baby. So he told Malcolm about Albert and what it was like when it was just the two of them. Then when Lizzie was born and how he'd been disappointed she wasn't a boy, though not for long. By the time he'd gotten to some of their epic games out in the yard with the other kids from the neighborhood, Malcolm's eyes were closed. Tripp ran his fingers through his hair. He was certain he still had bedhead. Dad had woken him up and brought him right to the kitchen. He thought about using the bathroom here, but he didn't want to wake Malcolm with the noise. So he quietly left the room and went to the one in the hall. It was 0730 when he made it back to the kitchen where Mom and Dad had cooked a big breakfast. There was toast, eggs, ham, pancakes, milk, and juice. Tripp sat down and started filling up his plate. Miguel stood, having just finished his. How is he in there? Tripp sighed. Kind of like yesterday, except he's asleep this time. That's good, Mom commented. He needs it. Yeah, but what he's dreaming, Tripp replied, shaking his head. How much should he tell them? And at breakfast. What they did to him in that lab, it was horrendous. As scared as he was when he woke up, I gotta think he's dreaming it. I hate leaving him like this. Maybe you should ask Starfleet to let you stay, Dad suggested. Tempting, but there's the other side of it. He washed some of the food down with some orange juice. I have to get back to Hoshi. I promised her I'd take care of him, and I promised him I'd take care of her when I got back. I was looking forward to telling her that he was healing and getting better. But now? When do you leave? Mom asked. This afternoon? Tripp said. I'm supposed to be at Starfleet headquarters at 1600. Dr. Perez wanted to see him. Miguel said. I told her I didn't think it was safe to move him right now, so she's coming here. Malcolm had surgery just a week ago. He's got to be in serious pain. The comm system in the kitchen chirped. Miguel was still up, so he answered it. Tripp recognized Trevon's voice. Is it too early for me to come over? Tripp stood and met Miguel at the comm. He's asleep and we're having breakfast. He's asleep and we're having breakfast. Give us about 30 minutes, then we can fill you in on last night when you get here. That will be fine. See you in 30 minutes. The call blinked off. Tripp went back to the table and Miguel left to check on Malcolm. By the time Travon got there, the table was cleared, but Tripp's parents were still sitting there with cups of coffee. Tripp brought Travon in and offered him a cup. Thank you, but I've yet to develop a taste for it. I find tea more to my liking, but don't bother. I've had some already before coming. May I sit? Of course, Mom answered. So tell me, Travon said, what happened last night? Tripp deferred to his mother. She'd been the only one up. I sometimes have trouble sleeping, she told him, so I come in here to sit. She indicated the bench set into the wall behind Tripp. I hadn't been there long when Malcolm walked in. He stopped at the door and looked very confused. He asked where he was. I could barely hear him. I told him and made him some scrambled eggs. His hand shook so much he could barely hold the fork, so I helped him, got him to drink a little milk. He kept looking like he was seeing or hearing someone else, too. He said he was afraid he was losing his mind. I told him it was a safe place for it. I had him sit beside me, and I told him about our Lizzie. As I told him stories, he fell asleep. He started to nod over, so I pulled him to my shoulder. Dad found them over there this morning, Tripp added, picking up the story. I touched him on the shoulder, and he jerked awake, but he was terrified. I could see it on his face. He clutched his chest. I think he was dreaming about what happened on Sharu. I took him back to his room, figured stories worked with him and Hoshi, and now Mom, so I told him stories, and he finally went back to sleep after the better part of an hour. So he's asleep now, 
Trevon asked, and Tripp nodded. Miguel says Dr. Perez is coming over to check on him. It's good that she's coming here, Trevon confirmed. He paused for a moment, thinking. I hate to wake him now that he's actually asleep. He looked to Mom. I would guess that his biological needs got him out of that bed. Otherwise, he, he hasn't eaten or drank anything? No, Tripp answered. First words he spoke since coming here, too. Then it was good you got some nourishment in him, Trevon said. I'll want to talk to Perez when she arrives. Trevon didn't have to wait long. Dr. Esmeralda Perez was young, perhaps in her thirties, with short-cropped brown hair and eyes to match. She came with several cases and a couple nurses to carry them. "'You must be Dr. Trevon,' she said, holding out her hand to him. She had a heavy accent, which he'd learned was regional. "'Dr. Perez, I presume,' he replied as he shook her hand. "'A telepath, huh?' she smiled. "'I never met one before.' "'Well, you'll meet two today,' he thought. "'I've met more than I can count,' he answered, smiling and kind. "'What's your take on Lieutenant Reed's mental state?' she asked, getting right down to business. "'He's severely traumatized and basically stuck in a cycle of flashbacks.' He found out that his sister died to give him his new heart, and not in a helpful manner. And there's the year that put him in the condition to need a new heart. Perez sighed. Yeah, I got to read those notes. So what we need to determine is his physical state and how much of his pain is physical and how much is emotional. I think you wouldn't want him so drugged up you couldn't work with him. Trevon nodded. It would be counterproductive, but I don't want him to suffer needlessly either. That surgery was a week ago. I can guarantee he's in physical pain. Perez sat down on the sofa, so Trevon sat in one of the armchairs nearby. So I've been thinking, she said. We want something local with minimal intrusion. One of the nurses handed her a case. She put it in her lap, opened it, and withdrew what looked like tan papers. Time-release patches. We used these a century ago for various things like birth control or smoking cessation. We can get them under his bandages so long as we can get in there and change them. They should be good for up to a week. We'll want to reassess dosage by then anyway. The fact that you are female might make it easier, Trevon said. There were no females where he was held during that year. That made a difference before he found out about his sister and entered the state. He seems to have tolerated Miguel Tucker here. I was able to rebandage his wrists and ankles the night he arrived, Miguel said, speaking up from his spot in the doorway to the kitchen. Perez regarded him. Well, then maybe between you, me, and Nancy here, we can get his chest, too. Sorry, Nikita, you'll have to stay out here. Miguel turned to the other male nurse. Mom's got pecan pie in the fridge. He pointed his thumb over his shoulder toward the kitchen. Well, now I'm jealous, Perez said. I do hate to wake him, as I've been told he didn't sleep since he got here. Not until very early this morning, Trevon agreed. Perhaps you should let me try. He tapped a finger to his forehead. He stood and started down the hall, waving for her to follow. He stopped at the door and opened his barrier, expecting the flood of cascading memories and thoughts, but there was only one scene. Tripp had been right. Malcolm was screaming in his mind. Trevon couldn't see anything, but he felt his back was on fire with lacerations and fingers reaching in. It took his breath away. He had to put a hand against the door to steady himself. You okay? Perez asked. Trevon raised his other hand. He tried Malcolm's trick. A console. He pulled one to mind, labeled the controls, and shut off tactile. The pain began to fade. The screaming remained. He has horrible nightmares, he explained to the doctor. Malcolm, he tried. You're not there anymore. You're on Earth. You're safe. The screaming stopped. Open your eyes, 
You're lying in a soft bed in a bedroom in a house, Tripp's house. You are safe. Now the memories came and the cascade began. Tripp closed the connection. He's awake. Then he had another thought. Tripp, perhaps you should come and introduce the doctor. Tripp dutifully sidestepped into the hall and motioned the doctor into the room. Trevon followed and stood in the corner by the door, out of the way. Malcolm, this is Dr. Perez, Tripp told him. She's got to check you out. Think you could sit up for her? Malcolm was pliant as Tripp did most of the lifting until Malcolm was seated. Tripp then beckoned the two nurses in. That's Miguel. You've already met him. And Nancy here is a nurse, too. Hello, Malcolm, Dr. Perez said. Malcolm didn't even look at her. She looked to Trevon. He's compliant, he told her telepathically. That may be as good as you'll get for now. She turned back to her patient and scanned him. You're dehydrated, she told him, but your wounds are healing well enough. We do need to change your bandages, however. Would you mind if your friend steps out so we can do it quickly? Tripp's expression was troubled, but Trevon surmised that was due more to Malcolm's state than being told to leave. Trevon followed him out. They stopped in the hall to wait. It wasn't long. The doctor emerged and met them there while the nurses finished up. The patches should begin to work in the next 15 minutes, Perez told them, keeping her voice low. When the pain subsides, he may come back. The patches can't stop all the pain, Trevon commented. Emotional pain is my department. Still, it's likely to help. She nodded. It would be good if you could get him to eat, drink some liquids, meet in the middle and try some soup. He did get himself up last night, Trevon replied. Could be that he'll notice clues like hunger more when that pain subsides. I'd like to see him at the hospital for physical therapy in a few weeks, but I can see that's a big ask at the moment. Tripp showed her to the front room again, and Trevon went inside to wait the 15 minutes with Malcolm. The latter was lying down again, facing into the room, which was more helpful than facing the wall. By the sleeve on his upper arm, he could see that his nightclothes had been changed as well. Trevon pulled the chair closer so that Malcolm was in reach. He had an idea that might allow Malcolm to stop his cascade and hold his attention. Malcolm visibly relaxed as the minutes ticked by. He had been so still that Trevon had not thought him tense. The patches were apparently working. Malcolm, do you hear me? He eased open the barrier to listen in on Malcolm's thoughts without being bombarded by them. Malcolm turned his eyes toward Trevon for just a moment before they lost focus and moved to another part of the room. He'd gotten the background reports from Dr. McCormick yesterday evening, and Trevon now had some inkling of how bad things had gotten between Malcolm and his father. But he didn't understand why. For that, he needed to know Malcolm. Not the Malcolm that survived his time on Sharu, but the 12-year-old Malcolm who had lost the love of his father. Malcolm, he began again. I know I told you it's better if you speak, but if you can't speak with your voice, speak with your mind, and if you can't do that, you can show me. And things changed. The cascade of memories had slowed to more coherent thoughts running from one trauma to another. Water was the most common of them, but he could now also see what Malcolm was seeing in the room. An old man harangued him from the corner by the door, his father. A pretty blonde woman, probably his sister, showed up now and then. The orc strode past the door, occasionally looking in. Malcolm Reed was out of time again, not physically as he had been in the crash, but in his mind. So Trevon tried something he usually wouldn't. As a rule, he did not touch his patients. Most wouldn't have taken well to such intimate connection. But Malcolm needed an anchor. So Trevon took hold of Malcolm's exposed left hand. This is real, 
this is now. We're on earth in the Tucker family home. You are safe here. It silenced the father, though it didn't banish him completely. The orcs disappeared from the hallway, though. Malcolm, I think it's time you shared that secret hurt, the one your father used against you. The cascade stopped. The father vanished. Trevon could still see the bed with Malcolm in it, the curtains on the window behind the bed, but he could also see a schoolyard under a partly cloudy sky. His viewpoint was closer to the ground than Trevon was used to. He was walking past a building, and somehow he knew it as Grayton Hall. He could hear the Tuckers quietly speaking in the kitchen, but he could also hear a child crying not too far away, and louder than that, the unmistakable, gleeful laughter of others tormenting that child. The vision from Malcolm froze. Trevon knew that if they moved forward, their shadow would give their presence away. But they're tormenting one of the other boys, young Malcolm thought. If I run to get a teacher, they'll be gone by the time I get back. That the older Malcolm could share all this detail and memory and even his thoughts within that time was astounding. Then young Malcolm looked back. At the side of the cottage there was a gardening implement, a rake. Trevon felt the younger Malcolm's trepidation, but he also felt proud of Malcolm for, for his own part. Let him go, Malcolm yelled as they rounded the corner, brandishing the rake, and Trevon knew the actors in front of him. Victor Renslow, the victim from a form below him, Leslie Morris, the ringleader, Terence Bishop, and Gerald Balanswheel, the henchman. Bullies were universal. Get off of him, Malcolm shouted. The words rushed out in one long burst as his fear met his determination. Get out of here, fish boy, Leslie spat, before we make you sorry you turned up here. The name-calling meant nothing, didn't cut the way Leslie wanted, but Trevon didn't miss the venom with which it was spoken. No, you get out of here. The rake swung in Malcolm's hands, and Trevon wondered that he felt the swing as if Malcolm had used his arms. One of the henchmen, Terence, backed away, which loosened the victim's arms. Young Malcolm moved forward and swung again. Move off! The third swing, dangerously close to Leslie's face, had the desired effect. He got off the younger boy. You've just made a big mistake, fish boy. I don't care, Leslie, Malcolm said, and Trevon felt the young man's pride match his own. Victor scrambled to sit up and spat out the mud and gravel. Are you all right, Victor? Malcolm asked, but neither he nor Trevon saw the other henchman throw something. Trevon felt sharp pain in the side of his own head, felt the dizziness even as he was still sitting in the chair. But young Malcolm had closed his eyes and only swirls of colors were superimposed on the room. Still, young Malcolm swung, but to the side so as not to hit Victor. With a shout, they were on him, and Trevon felt the blows, wanted to curl up as he sensed young Malcolm was doing. On and on it went until Trevon felt them lift his arms and drag him forward to somewhere. His whole body felt heavy and sore. He couldn't see where they were taking him, and the voices of the bullies seemed to come from far away. Then cold engulfed his head. Trevon felt Malcolm's hand tighten on his own with strength born of panic. He looked to his patient, focusing more on the reality of him than the memory. Still, he knew where young Malcolm was and that he could not push off his attackers. Malcolm on the bed began to shake to try and push himself back to the wall. He closed his eyes tight against the memory. Young Malcolm's eyes opened and Trevon saw the concrete bottom of a pool or fountain. Fountain. His instinct was to hold his breath, but he was aware enough not to do so. Malcolm, his patient, however, was not. He was drowning. Trevon put his other hand on Malcolm's quaking shoulder and tightened his own grip on Malcolm's hand. This, he reminded him, this is real. This is now. You are safe. I see it. Let it go. Come back. And then he heard a woman's voice. 
It's the air, she purred. It's hurting you. Let it go. Stop, Trevon told him and used his voice. It's over. I understand. Malcolm's other hand reached out and grabbed their joined ones. And slowly, the shaking stopped. The vision faded. Trevon left the chair to kneel in front of Malcolm. They drowned you. This is why you're aquaphobic. Someone must have saved you. Flashes of moments came to his mind, coughing out the water, a woman beside him, medics lifting him on a gurney, a hospital room, coughing some more, Malcolm's parents at his bedside, worried looks on their faces, a doctor's words, pneumonia, a news program, could not positively identify the attackers. Travon found that odd, considering that Malcolm, and likely Victor, could have identified them. Perhaps Malcolm had still been in the hospital, too sick to answer the investigators' questions. Maybe Victor had been too scared. The images stopped. Trevon could see that Malcolm was exhausted. The memory of his first drowning had taken a lot from him. Trevon still didn't understand how Malcolm's assault had changed his relationship with his father. How had the anguished father at his bedside turned into the criminal Trevon had found in the background check? Trevon gently pulled his hands back. He stood and adjusted the blankets over Malcolm. I'll let you rest. Then you should try and eat something. He left the room and found Tripp in the kitchen with his parents and Miguel. Perhaps you can sit with him for a bit, he suggested to the engineer. It was a difficult session, but important. Trevon could see the urge to ask questions in Tripp's eyes, but he sighed and left the table for Malcolm's room. I'm hoping he'll eat something after he rests some more, Trevon told the others. I think I could use a break as well. Perhaps I can return in the afternoon. Of course, Mr. Tucker replied. Trevon let himself out. Now, do you see why I called it trippy? <laughs> um, and we're just getting started because we're just getting into Malcolm's mind right now. And Trip is just starting to get in there and see what's going on, but he got that secret hurt in the form of being inside Malcolm's memory, basically, um, which I put in one of the replies to the comments I got on AO3 that is this because Trevon is a telepath that Malcolm can do that? Or is it because of Malcolm's present state that he can do that so completely? That Trevon felt what young Malcolm felt, thought what young Malcolm thought, even while he was thinking himself and feeling sitting in the chair. Um, but he also, before that, he could see the father in the room he could see Madeline pop in, the, the orcs passing by the door. These are all things Malcolm is seeing. Um, I do need to tell you some of the, the end notes. When Trevon was thinking about the Lord of the Rings, uh, I have a superscript one at the end of that, and that says, Quotes from the Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, Hofton Mifflin Company, 1994, page 798 to 700, 799. And then, of course, that very same drowning incident that I got from Last Full Measure. So, as told much better in the novel Last Full Measure by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles, Pocket Books, 2006, New York, pages 146 to 150. So, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, he told Hoshi that in Alien Us. 
But this was a more detailed memory of it. So I had to take more from that scene and put it directly into this memory that Malcolm is sharing. So got more of the dialogue, got more of how young Malcolm felt. That is all in that novel. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> they did tell it much better. I was paraphrasing it except for some of the quotes and it had to be, you know, the way it was. The Lady in the Water, again, is me. That was not in the novel. That was what I chose to have. And so that would be the first time he heard her voice. Whew. So, <laughs> um, I do like the bit where he walked into the kitchen. And, well, he first walks into the bathroom. And he's able to use the bathroom. But he gets so stuck in the flashback of the surgeries that he doesn't even realize he fell to the floor and after a while and he must have been down there a while because his stomach is now screaming at him i need food <laughs> so he makes it to the kitchen but he thinks he's in the lab but the hallway is narrower and he sees the orcs asleep on the couch that's miguel and trip asleep on the couch and he walks into the kitchen well there was no kitchen in the lab where he was that he ever saw so his flashback doesn't correlate with what he's seeing at all so he's kind of confused at first and then because Tripp's mother doesn't sleep well she touches his shoulder and does something very sweet I also like the fact that she's telling the truth they lost their daughter to the Zindi attack. Sudden, gone. They lost their house. They lost all of that. They had to start over without their daughter. We got to see it through Trip on the show. But we didn't see it, you know, we didn't get to meet his parents and see how they were dealing with it. So I posited that Elaine doesn't sleep well. She wakes up. She dreams Lizzie so real that she wakes up hoping to see her and then she has to go sit in the kitchen and think for a while and just remember and before she can go back to sleep but she she is there when Malcolm walks in and she tells him that it's a safe place to lose his mind and that they know grief and they can take it so he doesn't have to hide it this is the start of him finding home these are the hints of how it starts these little trickles i don't want to spoil it too much but yeah trip has to leave today so that's hard because he was looking forward to going back to hoshi and saying he's doing so well he's good here's his letters But now he has to go back and tell her something else. And I did play around with writing some of those scenes. I, I didn't actually start writing it. I imagined trying to think if they were a scene I could write. Where he goes back and he talks to Captain Archer. And he tells him the whole thing. Because, but he can't tell Hoshi like that. He can tell it to Hoshi like that. 
he can't take all her hope away. So how does he tell her? But he probably has to meet with Dr. Flox because he needs therapy. So we'll see some of that, how that happened. I mean, obviously, when we do see the Hoshi come back, what, like chapter 13, did I say, maybe? Um, we'll see how that has worked out. We won't see the actual return of Trip. We won't see those conversations. But we'll see how Hoshi is dealing with it, how Trip is dealing with it. We'll see. So, something to look forward to, in a sense. Trip was having a bad dream about Malcolm, face down in the pond. Yeah, he's having his own nightmares. And Trevon had to do something rather serious. He had to read Malcolm's mind. It's not something he does lightly. And he found that Malcolm is not um, Malcolm is not catatonic. He is scrolling through different traumas, one after the other, after the other, because they all hurt. So he can't be stuck on his sister has dead. The orcs invade, and or his father invades, and it's it's just one after the other. And so they're all mixing together. So he sees his father in the room. The orcs are down, walking down the halls with his, his sister. And it's just everything, you know. But notice he, the second time he does it, he says the water was most common. So Malcolm could sit in that courtyard and look at the water and the ducks and he didn't have a problem. He could shower on Enterprise. He didn't have a problem. He's aquaphobic from that first drowning when he's 12. He's drowned again in Alien Us. But he can still sit in the courtyard, right? So something because of the, the break that happened with his father shouting in the, in the hospital has made him bring up that trauma much more prominently again and so water 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 drowning you know and um i think that just happened when i was writing it and it's like yeah he's gonna be even more aquaphobic now it's gonna be <laughs> turned up loud but, um, you know, Trevon can't share everything with Trip. though Trip kind of wants to, but he's a good guy. He's not going to ask, you know. Those of Trip will not know the 12-year-old drowning story. He just knows that something happened when Malcolm was 12. Until, you know, that means Hoshi knows, Trevon knows. <laughs> He hasn't told Trip, so, but that has given Trevon the seed of everything. The drowning is a paradigm shift. He had a strict but loving upbringing till 12. He does go to a boarding school, so there is that, um, but he drowned at 12. 
gets stuck with a pneumonia in the hospital because of it. And the bullies are not punished. Um, if you read that book, they weren't. I think I go into it some more on in, in Finding Home, so I won't go more into spoiling it right now. Um, and he notices, you know, things are going to change because of that aquaphobia. He was headed for the Navy. Now he can't be in the Navy. It's not that the Navy wouldn't take him. He can't fathom being in the Navy with all that water. So that's what changed. It's, it's the catalyst for the change. And if Reed can't be in the Navy, what's that going to do with his relationship to his father, who really counts the Navy, the naval tradition of the Reed family as being very important? This even came out in the episode um, where they were trying to find out his favorite food in the conversation between Archer and the parents. Yes, the ocean is just too small for him. Um, that was a comment the father made. And yeah, they were upset, quietly upset that Malcolm was in Starfleet and not the Navy. Um... So, yeah, <laughs> and it did say in there that Trevon wants to know how he goes from this loving, caring father at the bedside at the hospital to the criminal he found in the background checks. So uh, I've, hit, I've hinted right away that it goes pretty far, Tre that Trevon has seen in the background check that he went to criminal. So how did that go from one to the other? Um, he was able to fall asleep with Elaine telling him stories about um, Lizzie. This harkens back to um, Hoshi and him telling each other stories to help get through the hard times. So she was helping him get through a hard time, at least to the point of sleep. Sleep is still horrible. <laughs> the nightmares are probably just escalated, you know, so much worse because of the state he's in. But now at least he's got some pain meds on board so they can take some of the physical pain away. And they'll last for about a week before he has to get new ones. They're under the bandages, so... Yeah, he's he's been through a lot, and he's got to go through it. And um, but I like that he opened that up to Travon. He relived that trauma for Travon, so he built up some level of trust already with Travon in those few days at the hospital. Because, and it's also, I mean, underneath that, Hoshi told him he should talk to someone, and he trusts her. So he talked to Trevon, and Trevon is the only one he could really share it with. He would have to speak with words with a non-telepath therapist, and he can't. But because Trevon is a therapist, or is a telepath, he could do that. 
because only certain people can be receptive to him. Trevon can kind of like talk to anyone. He talked to Trip, no problem. But Malcolm, only Hoshi could hear. When he woke up at the end of Alien Us and he was talking to Trip, or Trip was talking to him and he was asking him questions, and Malcolm was giving him brief answers. Trip asked if he could do that with anyone, and Malcolm immediately says no. He's like, well, how do you know? Did you try? He says it's easier than talking. So yeah, he tried with Trip because talking was hard. Thinking is easier. So he, when he talked with Hoshi, it was just even when she was right there beside him, it was all telepathic. Because it was, you know, his chest was in a bad way, so it was hard to breathe and hard to get the breath to talk. So it doesn't work with Trip. It only works with Hoshi, because Hoshi has this. Well, she's just receptive. She was receptive to the other therapists or the other telepath. She was the only one on the ship that was. So he was surprised when someone heard him at the hospital, but. The guy who heard him is a telepath himself, so that's why he heard him. So, Malcolm does not have a lot of control on his telepathy right now. So, he doesn't have a lot of control of his mind right now. So, he can't have a lot of control of his telepathy. And that's probably why he just flipped into a flashback basically when Trevon asked him to show him that hurt he just flipped right into a flashback he didn't choose I'm going to show him this memory it just flipped into a flashback and it happened to be sharing it with, Tra with Trevon and he probably didn't know he did it that fully but um, he was in that flashback so much that when he was drowning in the memory he was drowning on the bed he was in a flashback it, but it wasn't in it wasn't in italics because that was in Travon's mind, Travon's point of view in that scene. Um, there wasn't a lot. Well, uh, most of what Travon said to Malcolm was telepathic until he spoke, and the tags did say he spoke aloud, and then he spoke aloud thereafter. So when he told Malcolm to stop, he was speaking aloud. Um, he needed to get Malcolm out of the drowning part of that memory, that flashback, um, because it was basically his, his patient was drowning and he wasn't breathing, so he had to stop it. Um, I like Travon. I think he's, a, he's an interesting guy and a good therapist, and... I'm always kind of fascinated by that because I'm not a therapist. <laughs> I've worked with some, but I'm, I'm not one. I'm not trained in it. I've never studied psychology. Um, but there's something kind of intuitive that with my analytical brain I can do. It's like, what does this person need to say to get to his patient? What does, you know... Um, when I was writing Bashir and Esri, and it was all about Esri trying to get Bashir to talk and Bashir evading. 
And again, listen to your characters, write what they'd say. So I knew what Bashir was doing and what he was saying, and that led to what Hoshi or what, what Ezri was trying to say. That was in Faith 2. Um, it just it just works. When I write, it just works. I've had people commenting thinking I was a doctor when they were reading Alien Us. That's because I just look at it logically. If I was not a human, if I was a reptile, and I was looking at a human, I'd be fascinated by the differences. The supple lips that can just move like that. My lips are kind of static. In fact, they were beaks on the, the scientists. They were beaks. And there's these lips that are so supple and move. You know, they can just move in so many ways. Um, they're soft skin that they have hair all over, but more in certain places. Unlike some other, you know, animals that they have, they're, they're hairy all over and kind of the same. But these, you know, have hair on their heads. They have hair in their privates. They have hair everywhere else, but the hair on the head is longer and the hair on the privates is longer, but it doesn't grow as long as the hair on the head. <laughs> so it's like, why? But So if you just take a, you know, just step back and look at a human being in that way, then you can write those scientists. So that's, that's the way it works. And, and I put that logical, analytical mind into it and try to think like that scientist looking at a human being. And that's how I could write it. So that's just kind of, kind of the cool thing about writing, how if you just try to think like the character you're writing, you can pull off coming off as a scientist, but you're not. You can pull off coming off as a therapist, which you're not. Um, the other place I'm writing a therapist is, um, well, Sam in The Path Not Taken is, is, is the therapist for Bucky and uh, Steve. Um, but in the, the Pieces to a Puzzle series, it is Dr. Um, Rayner, Rayner from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, though she's doing a better job now. <laughs> so, <laughs> she wasn't a very good therapist in the TV show. Um, I kind of posited that she was under constraints by the government contract and, and all, but now she's free of that. So she can do more of what she needs to do for her patient and to work through the, that trauma and not just work on his um, his redeeming himself from his killing uh, days. And, you know, she's, she's more sympathetic. She's more wise. She's not pushing the, you got your mind back. You're being, you were pardoned. These are good things. Like, be happy. <laughs> yeah, you can't just tell a person who's that traumatized and that depressed to just be happy. And it's not just going to work. Yeah. People telling depressed people to just get over it are annoying. 
So she was a bad therapist in the TV show. She was passive aggressive. He he called her on it. <laughs> she was passive aggressive. And yeah, she was she she was she was kind of pushy. Um and she was all sunshine and you know, you should be so stop being depressed. You you've been pardoned. Yeah. He still got a lot going on in his head. And I liked in, in Healing Hurts when it says that, you know, Trip and Steve said it would be you know, everything would be okay. That's what he said at the end of Endgame. But Bucky doesn't feel okay. So, yeah. In writing her in A Tale of Two Cats and Other Stories, it was brilliant the way it just turned out that she comes up with the thing that Nobody managed to say to Bucky yet. One of, the, one of the commenters even said that. Why has anybody told him that yet? <laughs> that, you know, if I died and fell off that mountain, then none of those people would die. Would, all those people would be, still be alive. Would they? If Hydra wanted them dead, they'd use someone else to do it, but they'd do it. So they'd probably be dead still. that's got to fight with the guilt. <laughs> that's got to fight with the guilt. The trauma of what they did to get him to be the Winter Soldier has got to fight with the guilt. He kind of, according to Falcon and the Winter Soldier, got over the guilt and all his trauma, which I don't think is true. The thing with that guilt, I think it's someone, some part of having to keep forgiving himself. And... We have to do that with people who hurt us. We have, to, especially people we love who've hurt us. We have to keep forgiving them because the, the, the memories of the hurt come back. And you could get angry at them again or whatever. And forgiving isn't, I feel this needs to be said. Forgiving doesn't mean you let them back in your life to abuse you again. It removes that bitterness, you know, bitterness is like taking a poison and expecting the other person to die. If they're still toxic, you don't have to let them back in your life, but you can forgive them for the toxic they did before. I have to keep working on it for my kids because definitely they were toxic. Um, speaking of which, I just found out my daughter definitely did have her baby and I am definitely a grandparent. <laughs> so... I guessed, you know, she, the last time we met her, we ran into each other at an ethnic enrichment festival and she said she was pregnant. She was due in February. So I figured probably happened. My son's ex-wife was also pregnant, probably had that kid by now. Um, but I just found out today someone I met with had seen her and the baby so we don't yet know if it's a boy or girl or what their name is. Um, so I told my husband, who does have um, their contact information, I have it all blocked on my phone, but he has them, that and on Mother's Day he should text her Happy Mother's Day, see if we can find out a little bit. She had said then that she wanted a, a to, you know, have a, have a relationship, but she ghosted us ever since. So, <laughs> so we don't know.
Um, it'd be nice if they finally get the, you know, work themselves worked out as adults and then we can have decent relationships with them. And it seemed that way at the Ethnic Enrichment Festival, which was in August, I believe. So here it is May of the next year. So yeah, she, I, I tried to set up something, some meeting in a neutral place for Thanksgiving and she, you know, they couldn't work it out with their schedules, but then I was, they were just ghosted. We haven't heard from them since. Um, so don't know, but I do know that I'm a grandma now. So that's interesting. I don't feel any different. <laughs> so there's <laughs> not some switch that gets hit in the, in the, in the noggin there that goes, whoop, grandma mode now. No, that hadn't happened. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a trip writing characters that are able to know and do things more than you can. And it, to me, I feel like that's also part of the magic because I could think like that character and write what that character needs to be doing, even though I've not been trained as a therapist. And then sometimes the magic really just comes out in what they say or do. And that tale of two cats thing with Rainer was just like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, all those people would be dead. And that's just the magic coming out. And as my pen moves along the page, <laughs> writing is my drug. It makes me happy. And incidentally, I was writing Alien Us from, 20, from 2004 to 2014. And I told you I was super depressed in 2010. So... I was still writing that, but it was a long time between chapters. But I did finally get to the end, and I had, I wrote in an author's note there that it's not necessarily the ending I thought it was going to be, but it's an ending. And a new and better ending never surfaced. So that is the ending now. But it wasn't how I thought it would be. It was just that date in the, in the galley. But that worked because this story starts after that date in the galley. <laughs> so it took six years, but it finally just meets up. And we have this story to take over now, to take on with it now. So it turned out that an ending that I did turn out to be the ending, even though I wasn't thinking it was but you know life was rl can 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 get in the way of writing real life yeah so it can get in the way of things like you know hobbies <laughs> so that i was able to keep writing alien us through that time and then the fact that when i read them i don't feel those chapters being disjointed it's not like they feel like they were written six months for between each other or more. They flow one to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other. And that's, that's good. That's, 
wow, over 10 years, 30 chapters, they flow from one to the other, to the other, to the other. When I read it again, I was like, oh, that's good. I was kind of worried that it wasn't, but it is, it does. So, well, Finding Home only took three years, <laughs> not 10. Uh, I hope you're ready for chapter 10. I will not be recording that tonight. <laughs> I will wait till tomorrow night. It is uh, late or early morning, as uh, I am wont to do. And so I hope that uh, you're following along with this. I hope that you're enjoying it. That Well, enjoying is kind of a weird word for a story like this, isn't it? Um, same thing with Alien Us. Sometimes it's weird to say you're enjoying something that's so, with such horrible things happening to a character. But, um, yeah, I hope, what I hope is I hope you feel. I hope you feel Tripp's anxiousness. I hope you feel Malcolm's confusion and pain. And it's not because I want you to hurt, but because if I can channel those characters in you, that is a mark of good writing to me. There's a reason I cry every time I read the last two pages of A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> because I can get in there and just feel Sidney Carton just before he's going to die. It's just, it brings back everything I could feel from them from the whole story to that point, brings it all back, and I can't help but cry. And that's what I want for you. That's that connection, that telepathic connection from writer to reader. This is the story that I imagined, and I want to put it in your head so that you see the movie, so that you feel those characters that you feel. It's going to be a rough ride, but there will be light at the end of the tunnel. The only story I've written that did not have an up ending that I can think of, oh, there's a couple maybe, because the Tar Muriel Drabbles, she dies canonically. So there was no happy ending for her. Um, <laughs> And then Lure of the Darkness, where the spider grabs the girl and Legolas is trying to save her, and he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, um, there's that one. But all the others do have, if not a happy ending, an up ending. We've gone from the depths to rising. <laughs> That's where I bring the characters. I rise them out of the depths. Um, I think... This story could possibly qualify as a happy ending. And Momentus is going to end on happy ending as well. Um, maybe that's a change in my writing style that's happening. <laughs> that I'm going for full-on happy endings. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, I should let you go. I should probably get ready for bed myself. So let me know what you think. And... Please uh, reach out to me. I'd very much enjoy it. My email address is inhildi at gmail.com. That is I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. -E and you can also toot me on Mastodon at inhildi. All right.
Bye for now. Thank you.